Thank you. Morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. It's always great to get a clap before you even started, isn't it? It's always quite reassuring. So, um, uh, it's a delight to be with you today. We're going to look at uh, Nehemiah this morning. So if you've got a Bible and would like to uh, turn it on, take it out, wherever you do it these days, um, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 10. Hopefully the reference is up behind us. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, if you know, is that great Bible character in the Old Testament who is called upon uh, in a position of exile, taken by God to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And uh, we're going to start to read a little bit of his story this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1. It goes like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. The prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I don't know what your um, background was, where you grew up, where you've come from, what your story is, but I was privileged to grow, grow up in a very strong Cornish Methodist family. And in that family, my great-great-grandfather was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. My father was a civil engineer. Uh, no, and a preacher. And uh, as part of that, I had this amazing heritage, really, of knowing not just God's faithfulness to us as a family, but what he'd done in the churches. Uh, we're talking about the early 70s. I know I don't look old enough. But in the early 70s, uh, my village of 2,500 uh, had in it four Methodist churches at that stage, all of which were sustaining congregation. It's not that long ago. And in that context, um, I felt very clearly a call on my life at the age of 12 that I was going to serve God and, and it would be in a full-time capacity. didn't know quite what that looked like. So part of that, I went at the age of uh, 13 up to Scotland, of all places, to a mission organization there that we had a connection with. I spent three and a half weeks with that organization. And as part of that, uh, they were a very prayerful mission organization. And they prayed daily, a couple of times a day. 
And in those prayer meetings, we saw God move in the most amazing ways. I'm 13 years old, and I see people healed. I see prayers answered. I see words of knowledge like I've never seen before. I've been in prayer meetings in the morning. I'm 13 years old, where God prompts us to pray for something. We're watching the 6 o'clock news, and it's happened in the nation during that day. I'm 13 years old. I get back to uh, Cornwall. I get back to my parents. And I basically said to my father, Where does prayer feature in our church? Cocky little 13-year-old. And my father says to this day, he was really shocked by that because he realized that actually it didn't really feature. That was in the August. In the September, the first Sunday of September, we started a prayer meeting. There were eight of us at that prayer meeting. I'm 13 years old. Eight of us meet. My father and I are two of those people. Another six people join us. And we pray for the other young people in the church on that Sunday morning. The following Friday night in Redruth Regal Cinema, 14 people give their lives to Christ. 14 members of my youth group come to Christ. We went on from there to see God use us in amazing ways. It was that time at which Shine Jesus Shine had just hit the pop charts. Uh, Graham Kendrick was in. We formed a band. We were used in Methodist churches right throughout Cornwall. It's amazing times to be alive. We had a weekly prayer meeting. You wanted to be at that prayer meeting. It was the place to be. We had people literally walking down the street and they would go, I'm just here tonight because I feel that God told me I should come to your church tonight. It's in my lifetime, folks. I was 13 years old. There were prayer meetings that I was desperate to get to. Stuff homework. Well, we all do that anyway, don't we? Stuff homework. I wanted to be at that prayer meeting. You know, 35 years later, I tell that story and actually I'm challenged by it. Because not only do I remember what God did, but I also remember what my heart was at 13 years old. When your first prayer meeting you've been to in your home church, you pray and 14 of your mates get converted the next weekend, you're like, this works. You don't have to think, oh, do I stay in tonight and watch the telly or do I go and pray? 35 years on, I'm challenged. Do I still pray with that same passion? Am I still so delighted and excited by what God is doing? And God is doing stuff. But you know, he ain't doing it on the scale he was doing it in the 1980s, down in my home village. But I live for the day when he does it more than that. More than that. And actually, I pray it starts in Bodmin, but you'll do as well. (laughs) You know, one of the challenges I think we get to is that so often as we pray, I'm going to own this, so often as I pray, I tell God what would be a good idea. Don't we? God, bless Bob Min today because it would be really nice. God, do something in St. Austell today because actually it would be wonderful for you to do something nice. And it's a great prayer. It's a genuine prayer. My prayer is that God would bless us this morning. My prayer is that God's word would come alive to us this morning. But my prayer more than that is that we would know the reality of God, that he'd give us that vision again, that we would see those days that I told you about. In my lifetime, I wouldn't be here harking back to that, but I'd be here telling you what happened in Bodmin this past week. i tell you what happened in St. Austell this past week. we tell you what happened in this glorious county in this last week. That's what we want, isn't it? You know, as I said, I do believe God's at work. I come here this morning from a place where we started Sunday worship in Bodmin. You well know it two years ago. And in that time, we've seen healings. Clive Bamwell, you know, who was here, part of this church for many years. Clive's got a bit of a ticky ticker every now and then. Clive had stents fitted about two years ago. And uh, 
back last, last November, October, November, he was struggling, really struggling. He was struggling to, re- to um, walk up 4th Street of Godman to get to church. And he'd arrive in a real state. We prayed for him, and within days, there was no issue whatsoever, and he's still gone on. No, no issues whatsoever. Praise God. We've heard what we've heard this morning about this young lady. Awesome what God can do. In our two years, it's slow, it's blooming hard work, but we're growing. There's now about 40 of us that are meeting. There's a huge variety of people in that group. There's a unity in the churches in Bodmin, which excites me no ends. I, I now have a prayer meeting in my lounge of which seven of the eight churches are represented. And we pray passionately for that time. The end of every prayer meeting, one bloke is getting irritated now, but every time he says, I still can't believe we're doing this because 15 years ago when I tried to get the churches in Bodmin to pray together, they wouldn't even answer the phone to me, let alone pray with me. We're about to do a 24-7 prayer entity. It's more like 24-3, to be honest, because we can only manage three days. But we're doing three days over the Easter weekend, and every church in Bodmin is pledged to be part of it. You see, God is doing something, folks, and I'm excited by that. And when I share stuff like this, my heart rejoices again, and I sense a little bit of what I had as that 13-year-old lad when I'd just seen all my mates come to the Lord, and we were dancing around the village square that night. Most bizarre sight, but most beautiful. And I remember it again, and I get excited again. But so often I end up playing, oh, God, please. It'd be a really nice idea if you could just do something. Let me tell you what John Wesley said. John Wesley said this after he preached in one town. Never this side of eternity will I witness a sight such as this again. This was in a town where God moved in great power. So much that in the street, as Wesley preached, there were healings. The spirit fell on people. They were on the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's said in the records of that town that all but the gentry came to Christ during the time of Wesley's ministry. You know where that was? Redruth. My hometown of Redruth. Now, if you stand in 4th Street now, you don't think this is, this is like what I'm going to see in eternity. Believe me. But then Wesley knew it. More and more, my cry is, and particularly in this blessed county, God, do it again, isn't it? Do it again. Not just what Wesley saw, not just what I saw in the 80s, but what God has for us this time, now, and what he's preparing us for. So how do we get there? Well, I'm hoping Nehemiah is going to help us this morning. He's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. He's called by God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls which have been destroyed. Now, let's just understand this in context. This would have been absolutely devastating. This is the holy city. This is the place where God is thought to reside on the earth. And it's in ruins. And with it, the faith of the people is in ruins. They're in exile. They've been taken off into exile. And Nehemiah now finds himself as cupbearer to the king. And as such, he's in a position of responsibility. He's got an incredible position before the, God, before, uh, the king. It could be pretty comfortable, to be honest. He's got a good job. He's at the top of his game. He's got an incredible amount of responsibility. If you know the story of Nehemiah, one of the challenges for the cupbearer was he had to drink the drink to check it wasn't poisoned. He was the most trusted man in the kingdom. He'd risen to these heights. 
But you know, in reality, he was still a prisoner. He was still in exile. Like all the other Israelites to him at this point. He may be doing really well there, but he's in a place where he doesn't want to be. And you see, Nehemiah hasn't forgotten that. And when Hananiah, his brother, comes and tells him of what's going on in Jerusalem, he's absolutely destroyed. Although he's doing well in his present circumstances, he knows full well who he really is. But to me, folks, that's our first challenge. You see, we so easily settle into our circumstances, don't we? We so easily think, well, we're doing all right. Could be the devil's greatest deception to us all, to think we're doing all right. At Bob Light and Life, at best, we have nine children in our children's work if they all turn up. And that makes us the second largest Sunday school in Bodmin Town. But you know, people say to me, well, that's great, isn't it? You've got nine. No, it's not great. It's tragic, isn't it? You know, we settle in our circumstances and we think it's all right. Or maybe you're doing all right at work or at home. Life is getting more comfortable. You're doing all right. But actually God's saying, you know, that's not who you are. You're still in exile. We're still in that world that we're not. We're in, but we're not really part of. We're in that world where actually there's something deeper within us. Something that God is calling us to. And something that God calls us to pray into. Nehemiah was doing all right. He could have settled back and thought, well, I'm doing okay here. But deep within, he knew he was an Israelite. He never lost who he was. And folks, I simply think it's like this. There's a real danger for all of us here. We settle. We say we're doing all right. We forget who we are. But when I tell you stories of what happened to me at 13, your faces light up. When I tell you of Wesley standing on Madruth 4th Street and going, gosh, this is like heaven on earth, our faces light up, don't they? Because we're not satisfied, because we long for more. And why do we long for more? Because we believe in a God who is up for more and a God who has more for us. The kingdom is so much more. So let's not forget who we are. And may our prayers reflect that belief that we're not who we are. That we're not defined by our circumstances. That the church isn't defined by its circumstances. That we're on the winning side. Our prayers should be so much more. And Nehemiah's were. You see, here in the state, of Jerusalem, the holy city, Nehemiah is literally heartbroken. It says this, for some days I mourned and fasted. You know, I read that as well and I'm challenged. When did I last mourn and fast, really, for this area? When did I really cry out to God? And not just in a way that goes, oh God, it would be really nice but in a way that said, Lord, you know the state of our population. 23% of children in Bodmin live below the poverty line. It'd be really nice for God to do something. No, it wouldn't. It would be wonderful for God to break in amongst our community. 
But it's a really dangerous prayer to pray to ask God to break our hearts, isn't it? Whether it's for a place or a person. When did we last mourn and fast? When did we last say, God, really, show me what is happening in St. Austell? How can my heart be broken for these people? How can my heart be broken to the point that when it's announced that we're going to be out on Good Friday in the square, I don't go, oh, I don't know, there might be something on the telly. But I go, God, what an opportunity to witness to your name and to be out on those streets. That your kingdom might come, that people might realize and recognize the wonder of who he is. This is heart-wrenching stuff. And with it, you know, comes a great degree of vulnerability. And Nehemiah um, displays that too. As I said, Nehemiah's heart is broken for Jerusalem. As he comes before the king, he cannot help but show his sadness. This was a really dangerous position to be in. So we understand from historians at the time that anybody working for the king at this time in history would have to appear chirpy. You had to smile. You had to look alive and well, wait for it, or risk death. Okay, this wasn't, a, oh, you're not looking very chirpy today, so go and have a dime off. No, you got shot, okay? That was it, over. And he comes before the king. And his heart is breaking. But in that culture, he would have to be smiley. I don't know how you get on with smiley people. Do you find them as irritating as I do? You ever been to uh, M&M World in London? Anybody ever been to that one? Well, don't, okay? Let me help you with that. <laughs> M&M World in London is a mega store. It is four floors dedicated to M&M sweets, okay? And it's centre London property. It's right in the centre. I mean, it must cost an absolute fortune. And bless her, my eldest daughter dragged me there a few years ago. And you walk in through the door and, well, guess what? It's, it's full of sweets, okay? It's a, four stories of sweets, that's all it is. But when you get there, the staff are so smiley, you think it wasn't sweets, it was gold that they've got on their shelves, all right? Hello, sir, as you walk in the door. As you go up the stairs, good to see you, sir. It's sweets, okay? But they just keep going, they keep going. So I got to the desk with my little bag. We got to the desk. To pay. And this smiley American lady said, Ha, sir, where are you from? So I told her at that point I was from Salisbury. And she went, great, thinking, I'm thinking, you haven't got a clue where Salisbury or anywhere else is. And you don't care, but great. And I couldn't realize, couldn't quite work out why she was so smiley until she charged me £4.82 for a bag of pick and mix. Then I knew when she was smiling. You see, if you work in that sort of environment, you're trained to be smiley. Whatever that girl's going through as she's talking to me, she's got to keep a smile up. And you know, Nehemiah was trained the same, actually. He was trained to be smiley. He was trained to be chirpy. He was trained to hide his feelings. But for Nehemiah, there was no falsity, even in front of the king. This is not just a few tears that he cried. This is a deep longing to see the city restored and his God honored. For Nehemiah, this is to risk his life for what he believes to be true. So let's be real amongst ourselves and amongst those we're trying to reach as well. 
Because following Jesus is not an M&M retail assistant training package. If we let God break our hearts, it's extremely painful. If we really let God mold us and shape us for those in this town and beyond who are desperately in need of his name. Those in our own families, those in our own friendship groups who desperately need to know the Lord. Then we can't keep smiling away as if everything's an M&M experience. We've got to get real. And that will lead us to a point where we can't let injustice rest either. As you know, I have the privilege of leading the food bank team. We have 40 plus people now working for the food bank from this church, which is amazing. It's phenomenal. And it's a phenomenal mission opportunity to be involved in. For all the right reasons, but if I'm honest, for all the wrong reasons as well. Two and a half years I took on this role, two and a half years ago. At that point, we reckon we were feeding about 50 people a week. We just crunched the statistics for last year, and we're currently feeding about 70 people a week. We have people in, just I was in on Thursday, we had people in. And they sit there and they tell you they have nothing left. But in that context and that great sadness is also a place of great hope. When we spend time with people, when we give them our attention, when we give them the food, yes, that's part of it, but more than that, it's the human connection. And we get the privilege of coming alongside them. We get the privilege of praying with some of them. Get the privilege even of weeping with some of them. And we bring them that sense that they're not forgotten. And you know, I think what we do through the food bank most of all is we bring them the sense that we believe in them still and that God believes in them still. That's not an M&M experience. That's not a falsity of four floors of sweets. This is a bag of food and people who go, come on, we're with you. We can keep at this. But it is painful. Some of our volunteers tell me that they do their two-hour stint and then they will go home and lie in a darkened room for most of the evening. It is heartbreaking. But where would Jesus be on a Monday afternoon, a Tuesday afternoon, a Thursday afternoon and a Friday afternoon? I reckon he'd probably be downstairs. And as someone who follows him, I've no doubt that that's exactly the sort of environment I should be in. But it does put us in that place of vulnerability. Nehemiah knew it. And actually, if you want to follow Jesus, it's where he's going to take you, folks, into that place of vulnerability. But while we're in that place of vulnerability, don't ever forget that we know where our strength comes from. Don't know if you saw it as we read it, but there's that beautiful line. The king said to me, what do you want? And he says, then I prayed to the king of heaven. It's the clearest account in the Bible of what we call Arrow prayers, those ones that roughly go, help! And we just shoot them off in that, God, what do I do? What do I say? How do I take this forward? Nehemiah immediately goes to the source. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly who he is. And he cries out to God, what should I be saying? You see, the fact is, for Nehemiah, he knows it so clearly, even though he's in exile, even though he's in a place where he's not meant to be, even though he's in a place where it's all right. But it's not what it should be, because he knows, above all, that it's a partnership. And folks, we need to remember that we don't do this on our own. 
We don't operate that food bank of our own strength and on our own. We operate it in the strength that God gives us and the mission and the ministry opportunity that he's given us. We serve as churches in the strength that he's given us. And we do it in partnership. I don't know what sort of partnerships you think of when I say that. Uh, this is one of my favorite back to the 80s. Remember Keith Harrison Orville? Showing my age. Um, I used to really enjoy these guys on the tally and you think, that's sort of fun. But of course, it's worth to remember it was a pretty uneven partnership, wasn't it? The, the duck didn't really have much going for him. <laughs> but you know, it's not a bad way to look at our relationship with God either. That we haven't necessarily got a lot going for us. But it's amazing when he sticks his hand alongside our lives, what he can do in us and through us. Folks, I was a 13-year-old lad who challenged my church to pray. And we saw it grow from 40 to 250 in a matter of two or three years. I was 13. God can do that through a cocky 13-year-old lad. He asked his father with a heritage like that why he's not praying. God can use us. It's a partnership. It's a partnership in which we're the weaker partner. But look at the strength of the person of the God we're partnering with. Clive Calver said this. If I do the possible, God will do the impossible. Isn't that a great little line? If I do the possible, God will do the impossible. Turn up on Good Friday for that little event. Watch God do the impossible. Volunteer with the food bank. Watch God do the impossible. Come and pray and seek him for your friends and your family and watch him do the impossible. Jesus' promise is that he will never leave us or forsake us. So as we make these promises, we can remember that we're not our own. We don't do it on our own. And as we step into whatever God has called us into, remember we're in partnership with him. If we do the possible, God will do the impossible. So as we approach Easter, here's the deal. Remember how Nehemiah prayed, how his heart was broken, how he knew what partnership he was in, and how he cried out to God. But also remember how Jesus prayed. As we head towards Easter, remember that Monday, Thursday night in Gethsemane, when Luke says he sweated blood, as he cried out to God, knowing what he had to go through, knowing what he suffered for you and for me. That's prayer. Remember how he prayed, not your will be done. Not my will be done, rather, but yours. That's partnership. And remember what Jesus achieved. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls so the people could become the people of God once again. But Jesus rebuilt the way to the Father so that all of us could become his children again. So where are you at this morning? What about you? What about me? Where do we need to, to allow God just to stir us, to remind us that it may be all right, but it's not where we're meant to be? Where do we need to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his? To make ourselves just that little bit more vulnerable that he might take us and use us? And where do we need to step out in partnership with him? Of course we're going to make ourselves vulnerable. 
we're going to make ourselves uncomfortable. We're going to make decisions that are going to put us out maybe a sink with other friends and family and take sacrifices and make sacrifices. But as we do that, imagine what God could do in us and through us. As he did in this county many, many years ago. May he do it again. And may we live to see it in our lifetime. Let's pray together. Lord, your word speaks of our glorious inheritance in the saints. And Father, we recognize that this morning. We thank you for those who've gone before us. We thank you for those who've led us to you and influenced us in our ways, in our life's purposes, and in the direction we're walking in. Father, I pray that you just continue to stir our hearts that whatever you have for us from this morning, we would have the courage and the conviction to take away. Lord, that we would do the possible, that you might do the impossible. Lord, that we would see this town, Bodmin Town, Cornwall County, this country and beyond transformed by you. And Lord, that we might see it in our lifetime. And Lord, that we might see you come in ways that we cannot imagine. Father, help us not to leave it here. Stir this in our hearts this week. In these days ahead, we pray. That your kingdom might come. That your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.